last week I, I was preaching from the second chapter of Nahum, and I was planning on doing the third chapter today and then Philemon next week, but I thought I'm going to kind of flip things around, and I'm going to take Philemon today as our, our text. Philemon is a small epistle, meaning a letter written by Paul. It's a personal letter. It's written to an individual by the name of Philemon in the first century. I've never preached from this book before on Sunday morning, but it's real short. And I think it has a, a message that kind of is, is very appropriate for a baptism Sunday and an anniversary Sunday because it's about relationships, relationships between God's people and some of the things that we need to get a hold of if we're going to flourish as believers. This morning, when we saw testimony, when we saw people being baptized, really what we could say is that was the gospel on display. People were demonstrating that God has gotten a grip of them and their lives have been transformed. Now, there's other ways for us to put the gospel on display as well. And Philemon really helps us to ask the question, how do we put the gospel on display? How do we do that? I want to put the gospel on display. I don't want to just say I'm positionally a Christian, but not practically a Christian. I'm a positional Christian, but I also want to practically live out my Christian faith. And so this, this book focuses in on a topic that is relevant to anyone who has a relationship. So do you know anybody? Do you have a relationship with any other human being? If you do, that relationship, if it's meaningful, is going to mean pain at times. There's going to be hurt. And you are going to have to learn how to reconcile because we don't always get along. We don't always agree. Philemon is a letter. It's kind of interesting. What was going on is in the first century, there was a man by the name of Philemon. He's, he's probably a pastor or a bishop in one of the early house churches. And he had at some point a bond servant by the name of Onesimus. Now you can be a bond servant because you're born into slavery. You could be a bond servant because you're captured in war. You could be a bond servant because you'd racked up a lot of debt and had to pay it back. There was many ways of getting yourself into servitude. We don't know this man's circumstances, but somehow he was either fired. He was dismissed. He ran away. His term came up. We don't know. But Onesimus leaves Philemon's household and at some point encounters the Apostle Paul who happens to be in prison and he, he becomes a Christian. And Paul mentors this young man and they become like father and son. So Paul has this burden on his heart to see Onesimus reconcile with Philemon. And so he writes this very moving, heartfelt letter to Philemon outlining the nature of Christian reconciliation. And there's some things here for us to really think about. This letter teaches us to put the gospel on display through our treatment of one another. So we can preach the gospel. I'm preaching the gospel right now, but living out the gospel requires many things, including forgiveness, including the pursuit of reconciliation when we maybe have offended one another. How do we do this? The first thing is through close Christian fellowship. If you understand the nature of your actual relationships with other Christians, it will move you to want to reconcile. It might be tempting to think of our church as like an organization. We all just are part of this organization called Harvest or 
to think of our church, well, we're just a charity in the community that's trying to help the community, or it's a religious center, or something like that. But those are all inadequate. We are a Christian family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we often call our worship center our living room, because we're coming together once a week for a little family reunion. And we want to hear what our heavenly father has for us. And he wants us to function properly, not just in our relationship with him, but in our relationships with one another. So look at the text in verse one, it says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, Timothy probably wasn't helping to write this, but he was a close associate. So it's kind of a way of giving some honor to Timothy and also passing on Timothy's greetings to Philemon. The letter is written to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. So fellow worker means that he was some sort of a designated Christian worker in the early church. Again, maybe a a pastor, a bishop, which is basically a, a pastor kind of overseeing multiple churches. And Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So probably a church of not more than maybe 30 people. This is prior to the um, blessing of public worship. So people tended to meet in homes or in the synagogues for larger gatherings. He says to them, grace and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he's, he's thinking back to his relationship with Philemon. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. It's about testimony here. It's for ultimately it's for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you. I just kind of went through this and I underlined as many words as I could see that are relational words that speak of the the kind of unique fellowship that Christian people have with one another. Look at some of them. He uses the word brother, fellow worker, kind of like a partner in ministry, fellow soldier, sister, He wishes them grace and peace. He fondly remembers them. He also remembers them in his prayers. He's heard of their love. He's heard of their faith. He tells us that he's derived a lot of joy and comfort from their love. And again, he refers to Philemon as a brother. These words all help us to understand that there there is something unique and special about being part of the family of God. It's very unique and special. We have been united in Christ. Galatians 3.27 teaches that in relationship to baptism. That there's a, a union that takes place between Christ and the lost person. That's portrayed and demonstrated through baptism. And together now we, we are united in Christ. So think of it this way. I have the Holy Spirit actually living inside of my body. And if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. So, so right there, our unity goes beyond, oh, we speak the same language, or we live in the same county, or we like the same things. We are eternally united because the eternal God of the universe has taken up residence in us, 
That's radical. And in those relationships, as was the case with Paul, we were designed to receive joy and comfort and refreshment in one another's presence. We want to be a blessing to each other. And I know some of you, so many of you have been a, like a massive blessing to me in my life. And I trust that I've been somewhat of a blessing to you as well. Christianity is an imitative faith. We learn so much from one another as we seek to incarnate the virtues and values of Christ. And because this spiritual dynamic is so special, Paul's basic argument is going to be that Christian relationships are worth fighting for. They're worth fighting for. So often the human temptation is, well, there's a thousand fish in the sea. These three fish have offended me, so I'm just ditching them and I'm moving on with the others, the rest of the school of fish. And we tend to cut each other off or cut each other down or cut each other up. But Paul is going to argue that one of the manifestations of our spiritual unity must be reconciliation. It doesn't mean that we always agree on everything. We could humorously say we don't even have to like each other, but we're supposed to love each other truly as the Lord Jesus Christ has loved us. Christian relationships are worth fighting for, especially as pilgrims and sojourners, which is what we are. We are exiles, folks. This is not our eternal home. We live in a culture, in a country that is opposed to so many of the things that we hold dear, like core issues. We're like prisoners of war in the enemy's camp, trying to get along, trying to help each other out, trying to survive another day. Several years ago, I saw a Bruce Willis movie, so it's got to be good. Hearts War. Bunch of American POWs in a prisoner of war camp, and they have to stay tight. They have to stay close. They're digging tunnels, trying to get out. They're keeping each other's secrets. They're trying to stay under the enemy's radar. In the end, one of the officers is gunned down to protect another group that tried to escape. What, what was it that brought them together in unity? The fact that they were in exile. The church is, because of human nature, at times going to be fragmented over core doctrine. And that's worth dividing over. But most of the time, we're not dividing over stuff like that. Most of the time, we're not in relational conflict because someone's denied the Trinity or denied salvation by grace through faith alone or denied the authority of scripture. Usually it's a far lesser issue. And the passage is calling us to get along, to seek reconciliation. Some of the things I wrote down here that tend to destroy relationships just for us to consider because we're different personalities and You may say, yeah, that's me, that's not me, that one's me, that's not me, that's fine. I'm sure they don't all apply to every person in the room, but some of the things that do tend to destroy relationships include the silent treatment. There's times when it's important just to zip your lips. But if your default response to relational conflict is always, just don't say anything, we ignore it, we don't deal with it, we just move on, that's not redemptive. That usually doesn't bring healing, but it can be a tendency. 
Another tendency is I just cut people off. I just cut people off. I cut people off. In extreme cases, I move from marriage to marriage to marriage to marriage to marriage, from church to church to church to church to church, from job to job to job to job to job, because it's always someone else's fault. Well, even if it is everyone else's fault, what is the Lord maybe trying to do in you and through you, through even the challenges of those relationships? Could it be that he wants to, for you to grow up, to learn perseverance and diligence? Another tendency which arises in conflicts is exaggeration. It can be verbal exaggeration. It can be in the mind. Something happens and you start to think about it and stew on it, or you talk about it, or you tell the story. And every time you, you add a little more and what began as maybe a, I don't know, a category five storm, all of a sudden becomes like a category 10. And at times our disagreements with people may just be based on the other person's ignorance. They may not even have intended it. But we read into it and we mull it over and all of a sudden they're like the boogeyman or they're like an ogre. Exaggeration is something we have to be careful about. Perfectionism. Perfectionism. Expecting people to be perfect. I've talked to some single people. Why aren't you married? Well, I haven't found Mr. or Mrs. Perfect. That's your problem. They don't exist. Or couples get into marriage and they're like, oh, You're not acting and looking as good as you did on our wedding day. What's wrong with you? And the relationship starts to disintegrate. We we go to a church. We're like, wow, I thought this was a perfect church the first month. Then I realized it's not. I'm out of here. Perfectionism is not possible. We're not fully sanctified yet. 100%, you're going to stick around this church. You're going to learn something about me. I will let you down. 100%. I'm going to let you down. And you will let me down. That's life this side of heaven. But through those trials and those challenges, God, and maybe that God wants to teach us something, but we're we're too apt to quit early. Stereotyping, that's another problem. Someone does something, so you assume, well, that's what they always do. That's what happened last time. So clearly I'm reading into this situation. That's what's happening this time. They couldn't be trusted then, so they can't be trusted now. And I'm never going to trust them. And we pigeonhole people and we think they're, they, you know, they can never change. They can never move forward. There's no hope for them. Surely God couldn't change that person. Boredom. Always thinking about, or always assuming that relationships are about, you know, the excitement. I was Considering this, as we come up to our, well, I guess we're at it, our 18th birthday, and just thinking back about a lot of the awesome things that have happened in our church, so I can think of you know, the baptism Sundays, the birthdays, the grand opening, all these things, that, all these peaks. And then I can think of the valleys, you know, the, the deaths, the relationships that fell apart. But most of our life as a church is in the middle. It's just like getting up and doing today the exact same thing that I did yesterday. And it may not be super awesome, and it may not be hugely thrilling or exciting, but it's about good old-fashioned faithfulness. It's like you get saved on a Tuesday, super awesome, but Wednesday you still have to go to the same job. 
You get saved on a Friday or healed on a Friday. Monday, you're back to work. Most of our lives are lived in the humdrum, the daily routines of life. And in that is where God, I think, does most of his work. Because that's where we spend most of our time. But at times, people give up on relationships. It's not exciting. I don't want to be part of this church. There's not a, there's not a lot of excitement right now or this marriage. It's, it's just kind of the same old, same old. Or It's like, that's life, folks. Like, welcome to the real world. How about prayerlessness? I think the Bible says something about praying for our enemies. And while there are prayers of vengeance and vindication recorded for us, most notably in the Psalms, what God probably has in mind there is when we pray for our enemies, it's not like, hey, Lord, take them down. Get rid of them. Damn them to hell for all of eternity. I'm not sure that's what Jesus has in mind. We are to pray that the Lord would enlarge our hearts to see them as broken people as we are, to forgive them, to show them love. That's countercultural. And I know it's hard, but that's part of the call of Christ. How about godlessness? If God is not evident, underline that word in your mind, like evident in your relationships, Something's wrong. You got the proverbial Christian family and they're in church and they're kind of doing their thing. And little Johnny grows up to become an adult and he gets engaged and he's in the pastor's office or one of the staff's office. And the staff person thinking this person comes from a great home starts to ask questions about their upbringing. Oh, you were raised in a Christian home. What do you think some of the strengths are? Well, we never prayed together. My dad never talked to us about faith. My mom was always freaking out at everything. And you're like, what in the world? I never would have thought it. The Christian faith can so easily be compartmentalized into a Sunday morning only experience. My father, who doesn't walk with the Lord, calls those people smos. Sunday morning only Christians. They're smos. And there is some truth to that allegation because some people don't live out their life. God is not at the center of their relationships. So here's how it works. If you've ever done woodworking, you take two pieces of wood. You want to join them together. You can run a couple screws through them and that'll hold them together. But there's still two different pieces of wood. So let's say those screws represent um, common interests in sports. What happens when your interests change? The screws come out, the wood falls apart. How about um, common interests and hobbies or political offices or whatever it might be? All these things that in unbelieving relationships bring people together. We're together because we benefit each other. As soon as you take the screws out, things fall apart. But our relationship as believers is much deeper and more profound. It's like two boards that are glued together. If you glue two boards together, and you try to break them apart, they will almost never break on the glue joint. The law will splinter elsewhere through the wood because that joint becomes like stronger than the wood itself and it holds things together. And that's the kind of unity that we have in Jesus. It's more than, well, we're together because we speak the same language, cheer for the same team, like the same sorts of things or sing the same music. We are together because 
God has bound us together. And he's bound us together for all of eternity. So you know the old joke, if you don't like me now, you're going to have to put up with me for all of eternity. We have radical unity through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is worth fighting for. So now we talk about some application, because in verses 8 to 15, he, he takes all of those wonderful descriptions of relationship, and he applies them to Philemon's circumstances. So think of your own circumstances. Can you think of a person right now that you don't like? <laughs> that has hurt you, that's offended you, that you are at odds with. I'm talking about another believer. Maybe a past church, a former pastor, someone in your small group, a former spouse. Can you think of someone that says, well, I know the Lord and they know the Lord, but we don't talk. Okay, well, we know a relationship takes two to tango. So they're responsible for their behavior and They may not be interested in reconciliation, but as far as you're able, take these words to heart, starting with verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you, there it is twice, for my child. Onesimus. You know what? This is why this is fascinating because there's this interesting dynamic in the church. We are both brothers and sisters. And as the older mentors and trains the younger, we're also fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. Both of those things are biblical paradigms that affect and inform the way we interact with each other as Christians, we partner together in ministry, but we also are responsible as we grow older and more mature in the faith to mentor and train up and speak into the lives of the younger people so that in that sense, we function as fathers or mothers in their lives. This is how Paul saw his relationship with Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would say that's kind of pretty emotional language, pretty serious and sincere language. I mean, Paul loved this kid to death, but he's sending him back. And then look at this, selfishly. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent. He's showing respect to Philemon. In order that your goodness might not be out of compulsion, but of your own accord. Just a little sidebar. This is why when Christians come into our church, we're delighted if they're being fed and nourished. But we want to be honorable in the way we process that those circumstances. So when someone comes into our church from another church, we're kind of like, hey, why'd you leave your other church? Were you under discipline? Was there some problem? Is there an unresolved conflict? Selfishly, we could say, oh, we're just going to take you in because what does it say? 
you would be of great use to us. But that's not right. We want to make sure that as far as you're able, are there any broken relationships out there that you need to seek to mend, that you need to reconcile? Why do we encourage that? Why do we push for that? Because we want to honor this principle. And by the way, if we don't do that, others won't do it for us. And we've had that happen where someone is disciplined or someone causes problems and they just leave and they just go to another church and we're ever asked any questions about them. The next thing you know, they're just serving in some other church, but there's like, there's, there's damage that's been done. There's unresolved conflict here. We're all part of the body of Christ. And so we need to be honorable in this respect. Verse 15, for this perhaps is why we parted. He was parted from you for two time words, a while that you might have him back forever. A couple things that I, I think are worthy of our consideration. The first is, I love the fact that Paul says, essentially, I could have pulled rank with you and told you to do it. But I didn't want to. I wanted to appeal to you for love's sake. Brings to mind this truth, that if a leader does have to pull rank with someone. It means one of two things is true. Either the leader's immature or the follower's immature. We shouldn't really have to pull rank with one another, even though some have roles of authority. We should be able to appeal to one another out of love to do the right thing. And the response should be a positive response. Notice twice, he appeals. He appeals. What's, what's he appealing based on? For love's sake. So automatically, 1 Corinthians 13, love. Oh, it's patient. It's long-suffering. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. I mean, those three expressions of love in particular are like super, 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 super relevant when we're seeking to reconcile. It's patient. It's long-suffering, meaning it doesn't, doesn't run around thinking the worst of people, and it keep, doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Ideally, if someone offends you and things have been made right, says, hey, remember when that happened? You're like, I don't remember that. I deleted it from my mind. I haven't thought about that for years. Why, why would I be thinking about that? I also appreciate the fact in verse 14 that he approaches him respectfully because he knows that he had the right to discipline Onesimus. Verse 15 I think is just absolute gospel in action where he points out that maybe this disagreement that you had that led to a temporary separation actually will pay eternal dividends. Thinking, wow, that's a huge relational key. Because that means that if you're in a relationship that's not great, you might want to consider asking the question, okay, it's not great, but this actually might be good. How can I leverage this broken relationship or this challenging relationship to take this thing to a whole new level to put the gospel on display? So you know that that bad marriage you're in? You know, where there's that tension and that fighting or that silence or stonewalling or that, that ongoing conflict, and you're like, oh, I wish it was like it used to be. Well, maybe it is like it is, 
Because God in his sovereignty wants you to grow to a level that you otherwise wouldn't have grown to if things were just hunky-dory. God gives us pain. And hey, I'll be the first to admit it. I do not like pain. I don't like conflict. I don't like pain. I don't like challenges. I don't like pushback. I don't like distractions. I hate that stuff. I, I want to run from it. But now I'm looking back 40 years and I'm thinking, I, I wouldn't be like anywhere near where I am today if it wasn't precisely for those things. I mean, think about it. How can you ever develop the virtue of patience if there's no reason to ever be patient? How could you ever put into practice the virtue of love or forgiveness if you've never, ever been offended? So the virtues and values of Christ, this is the point, grow and flourish and rise up in the soil of challenges and difficulties. To get to the great marriage, maybe you should have a bad marriage right now because you need to learn something. Love, forgiveness, keep God at the center, prayer, whatever it is. You know those weak family ties? You know the whole, one thing I don't like about Christmas is those family gatherings because weird Uncle Al's going to be there. I wonder how God might use your love, your long-suffering, your desire to reconcile to bring your clan, your extended family, to a whole new height of spiritual vitality. Disagreement. It's like, I disagree with you. I'm gone. I'm out of here. Maybe God is allowing that disagreement because he wants you to communicate. He wants you to ask questions. He wants to humble you so that you can develop a relationship marked by strong agreement. See what I'm talking about? God allows the negatives in order to lead to a positive. This is what we would call like a redemptive view of Christian living. Redemption. It's always trying to bring about something new. God wants to bring about something new through the ugliness, the challenges, the difficulties. Think of your house. Some of you probably live in houses that are 100 years old. Some of you maybe just built a a house this year. But regardless, every house eventually needs to be renovated. Because even if you keep it up, it gets kind of homely after a while. I mean, the green shag, eh. the the brown paneling, ah. every house needs to be renovated. Either because it's falling apart or it's just dated. It It needs to be refreshed. But you know why people often avoid renovations? Because in order to go from what it is to what it needs to be, things get really ugly. I mean, there's dust and dirt, flooring ripped out, new wiring. And I mean, it's like a bomb went off in the house. So I'm going to avoid it. I'm just going to put up with it. In order to go from eh to beauty, there needs to be that period of ugliness in between. And so is the case in our relationships. The challenges and the turmoils only bring us close together if we see them as Christ wants us to. Verse 11 says he might go from being useless to useful. (laughs) That's great. It reminds me of probably one of the most famous Proverbs. Proverbs 27, verse 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. If you've ever seen iron sharpen iron, you take the knife and you're sharpening it on your 
um, I don't know what they call them, the sharpening stick. It, it requires that you strike one object off the other, and it makes this grotesque sound, but it's necessary in order to sharpen the knife. That's how it works in relationships. To grow up, there has to be confrontation. We strike against one another, but if we see it redemptively through the eyes of Christ, it can be a huge blessing. In order for this to happen, there's a third truth I want to share. And that is we have to learn to prioritize relationships over position. Relationships over position. Not the positions aren't important. God has ordained roles. Some of you are parents. That's your role. And you have authority over your kids. Some of you are leaders in the church. You have a position of authority. You might be a police officer. You have a civil position of authority. God's not anti-authority or anti-roles, but relationships, relationships, relationships. That's what it's all about. In fact, even in the civil realm, positions of authority are really supposed to serve relationships. Security, safety, well-being, relationships. As Paul considers one of the human challenges to reconciliation between Onesimus and Philemon. What was it? They were not equal in terms of their roles. One was the master. One was the bond servant. You could say, well, that, that's an insurmountable obstacle. They had different roles. The solution is to make them even. They have to have the same job, make the same amount of money, have the same access to education. That's the only thing that will fix all of this. It's just about evening out the roles. It's nothing to do with it. What enabled them to reconcile was their status given to them by God. What was their status? No longer, verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even even your own self. So that probably means that Paul led him to Christ at some point in the past. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say, At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Paul was hoping that he would be let go from prison soon. Again, not anti-authority, not anti-position. Some people try to destroy roles and positions thinking that's the gospel. No. The gospel changes our status, but it rarely changes our roles. If you go to work as the employee and you get saved, the next week, or the next day, you're still going back as the employee. It doesn't change our roles, but it changes our status. And so, even in the life of a church, we look around, we're like, oh, different roles. Some people are doing this and that and this and that. Some roles are more prominent. Some are less, less prominent. That's no reason for pride or mistreatment or, you know, extra honor. Everybody within the family of God is valuable and loved and precious and special and meaningful 
Because first and foremost, we are brothers and sisters. First and foremost, that trumps everything else within the family of God. Each of us apportion different opportunities, but partners in ministry. And I love that Paul assumes a positive response from this mature brother, which we should always do when we proclaim the word of God. We should always presume and assume a positive response from God's people because God's people want to grow up. God's people lean into conviction. God's word, God's people love the challenges. A truly blood-bought believer wants to grow up to become more like Jesus, hands down. Paul saw that in Philemon as I see it in so many of you. Three things to take away then. Open yourself up to life-giving relationships. Make sure that you are enjoying the, the brother-sister relationships, the love, the grace, the peace, the bonds that come from being part of a local assembly of believers. Secondly, open yourself up to reconciliation. Again, you won't necessarily be able to change someone else's mind. You may be at odds with someone. You haven't even seen them in 20 years. You don't even know where they're at. But as much as you can, reconcile with others. And in your heart, let it go or forgive or at least demonstrate the kind of love that Christ is calling you to. And then third, openly champion every person's role as valuable. We may not always be equals when it comes to roles and tasks and responsibility, but we are 100% equal in Christ. This is why Paul said, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all together in Christ. He's not saying, well, there's no males and females. There's no such thing. There's no such things as slaves anymore, masters. There's no such thing as that. There's no such thing as ethnic groups. That's not the point. The point is, no matter your role, whether it's good or bad or neutral, we are one in Christ. Thank God for that. He is our master and our Lord and our Savior. So let's honor him in our conduct with one another. 